God, we pray Ephesians 1 for ourselves that You, O God, this very moment would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowing of You. God, we pray that You would do this. Show us Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this afternoon we're continuing our six-part sermon series on prayer. If you're visiting, this will be the first time you hear it. But Pastor Nathan began our series two weeks ago when we considered Luke 11 and our Savior's prayer there. And last week we walked with him and worshipped in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This week and next week I have the joy to walk with you through the Apostle Paul's prayers for the Ephesian church in chapter 1 here. And then next week we'll look at chapter 3, which is really a part 1 and a part 2. And then two weeks from now, Pastor Nathan will pick back up in Colossians and then we'll close in Romans. Are we a praying church? Now I know that we have a prayer meeting. But are we a praying church? Do we have a right view of prayer? Do we see prayer as God sees prayer? Do we see intercession the way that God views intercession? How do we pray? Now I'm certainly sensitive to the fact that in a six-part series in prayer and we're three in, and I know my own heart, I'm sensitive to the fact that in a congregation this size, there might already be the weight of the subject of prayer on us. I don't pray enough. I don't pray like the Apostle Paul and now we're about to walk through another one of his prayers. I can't pray that way. What about those of us who would say, I can't pray like this. Well, I want to say a few things pastorally as we get started. Number one, praise the Lord that prayer is not our righteousness. We are not clothed in prayer, as it were. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our words, how we articulate prayer, they don't save us. Praise Him that our salvation does not rest upon our prayer life. Our right standing with God does not rest on whether we sound like Paul or not. This is good news. This is grace for us. However, for some of us, prayerlessness is real and repentance is necessary. And for some of us, there's something deep down in us that loves to pray long prayers out loud for the sake of being noticed by others. We like to pray like Paul because we want to sound like Paul for the sake of impressing our brothers and sisters. Jesus has a lot to say about that in Matthew chapter 6. Repentance is necessary. So let's ask ourselves again, Grace Church, are we the church that loves to pray long prayers? Do you pray because you like to be heard? Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with praying long prayers. But what's the heart behind it? If that's us, if that's you, then repentance is required. Now, brothers and sisters, we're children of God. We want to pray because we love God and we're His children. We pray because we want to walk in fellowship with Him. 
We pray because we want to talk to Him. We pray because we need Him. Not because we're good prayers. He wants us to talk to Him. He loves us. Now I have six kids. And the bookends would be a two-year-old little girl and a 16-year-old. I still say little girl. Now, they both have different vocabularies. And I wouldn't expect Ruthie, who's two, to talk like Augusta, who's 16. I would expect the 16-year-old to talk different, better, more refined than the two-year-old. But when they're both in the room, and I'm in the room with them, and they say, Daddy, I hear them. Loud and clear. I listen. They have my attention. So both of them on the spectrum. But in the room with me, when they say, Daddy, music to my ears. Yes. So with us, it's the same whether we're two years old in Christ or 16. We talk to God. God wants us to talk to Him. Let's talk to Him. And isn't that the most simplistic definition of prayer? Prayer is talking to God. Intercession then would be talking to God for others. In a corporate prayer meeting, though the language may not be right, it would be us praying for us. Dads, have you ever come home from work or moms? And before you even cross the threshold, now in my family, it's one grabs one leg and one child grabs the other leg and one grabs the waist. I'm high-fiving Jay and Augustus kissing me on the cheek and daddy, 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 daddy. Everybody vying for attention, wants to see me, wants to talk to me. We've all been there before we even get in the door. Isn't that a picture of a corporate prayer meeting where we assault the throne room of our heavenly father, grabbing his legs, as it were, daddy, 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 daddy. That's a picture of corporate prayer, going to our heavenly father with an all out assault. Well, how does God speak to us? He speaks to us through his word. And if we want to hear him audibly, it's been rightly said, read the book out loud. Now, how do we speak to Him? If He speaks to us through His Word, simplistically, we speak to Him by prayer. Now, I don't want us to miss this either. All of this ties into what Pastor Nathan said when he began the series in Luke 11. Our greatest need is a right view of God Almighty. And as we grow in our relationship with Him, as we get to know Him better, our whole life is reoriented. The way we approach Him, our love for Him grows. Our understanding of who we are in Him grows. It changes even how we talk to Him. So as He reorients our life by His Spirit, it gives us a more correct view of who He is. Our desires and affections begin to match His own. Our petitions begin to change in light of who He is, what He loves. And when our view of God changes, all of life reorients. We'll begin to have a right view of ourselves. A right view of self. Certainly in the sense that we're creatures. But in Christ. Who we are in Christ. A right view of who we are in Him. And what He thinks about us. And when we have a right view of ourselves, we'll certainly have a right view of prayer. So it all stems from a right view of God. A right view of God will lead to a right view of prayer. Now over the past couple weeks... Pastor Nathan has asked several questions to stir us up as we consider what it means to be praying people. Two weeks ago, he said this, the litmus test 
on what we think regarding the sufficiency of Christ will be how we pray in our prayer meetings. I believe the same can be said about the closet prayers and our intercessory prayers. The litmus test of what we think regarding the sufficiency of Christ will be how we pray in our prayer meetings in the closet for one another. What we're going to see in Ephesians 1 is that Paul believed the same thing. And he's going to show us we're going to get to see it on display as he prays for this church. Now, last week, he said something like this. As a church, Pastor Nathan said, as a church, what do we want most for one another? Christ, Christ likeness, growth in godliness, maturity in Christ, to be conformed more into the image of Christ, a right view of God. How does that happen? We know 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's on a banner here. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed to the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. When we see Jesus, when we look upon him, he changes us. We become more like him. We're going to see in Paul's prayer this morning that he's praying that they would know experientially, not know about, but know experientially God in greater degrees and all that he is for the believer in Christ. Paul is praying that God, the Holy Spirit, would open the door to the treasure chest of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ and let them see that. Paul knows what the Ephesian church needs is a greater view of God himself. So in his prayer, he's praying that they would know the purposes of God's heart, all bound up in Christ towards his people. Simply stated, Paul is praying that they would know God better. That's his prayer. He doesn't pray for material riches. He doesn't pray that they would know the culture better. He doesn't pray for temporal needs. He doesn't pray for their trials to be lessened. He prays that they would know the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's praying that they would know in full what is already theirs in Christ. Now, as I said earlier in Ephesians 1, we we can't separate Paul's intercession in verses 15 through 23 with the verses that precede. Now, we get a picture of Paul in the closet, as as it were, just praising, praising God for who he is in Christ, praising him for all the spiritual blessings that are his in Christ. And we know from the original, verses 3 through 14 was one long run on sentence. We have punctuation marks that were added, but Paul never took a breath. Praise Jesus. Praise, 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 praise. And that praise overflowed into his intercession for the brothers and sisters in the church at Ephesus. That God would open their eyes by the Spirit to know the fullness of God and the grand scope of the blessing of redemption that was theirs in Christ. Now, Paul's not praying for them to get more blessing. He's not praying for them to get more stuff. He's praying that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes so that they would realize all that they are and all that they already have. He's praying for a realization. He's praying for them to see that this is all theirs. He's praying that the Holy Spirit would open the door to the storehouse of God to show them who He is, what He's done for them in Christ, and what they possess in Him. James Boyce, 
that faithful pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's long since passed. In 2000, he went to be with his Lord. But he says this about Paul's intercessory prayer. Put together, it is really one great prayer for knowledge of God and a fuller knowledge of salvation. Consisting in our hope, our inheritance, and the power available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The chief idea is that we might know God. He's praying for an experiential knowledge, an intimate walking with Him knowledge. Again, he's not praying that they would know something about, but to know in intimacy, in walking. Paul prays the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. Another wonderful pattern of prayer for us. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul's heart in his prayer is that they would know God better. That that they would see Christ who has explained Him. That the eyes of their hearts would behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he knows that's what's best for them. Is it what's best for us? Do we need to know Him better? How well do we know this God? Well, let's peer into the intercessory prayer. Three points, and it's the petitions. There's three petitions under the banner of verse 17. In verse 17, Paul starts, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. God is praying that they would know God better. Under that banner, there are three petitions that explain what Paul is after. Number one, that they would know what is the hope of His calling. That's in verse 18. Number two, that they would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Number three, that they would know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So let's consider Paul's three petitions in his intercession. Number one, he prays that they would know what is the hope of his calling. 1 Corinthians 1.9 comes to mind, makes it clear that God is faithful through whom... You were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we have been called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we think of the word calling, does Romans 8 come to mind? And we know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the first born among many brethren and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified paul is praying that they would see and comprehend the fullness in this petition of god's saving purposes in christ for them in their calling now he's praying for believers here he's not praying for unbelievers He's praying for the church. We can see that in verses 15 and 16. For this reason too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. He's praying for those who have been called. He's praying for those who, according to Colossians 1.5, have a hope laid up for them in heaven, which they had heard in the gospel. Now, if we look again at verse 15, considering this 
hope of his calling. This is the tie that takes us back to Ephesians 1 and Paul's blessing of God. For this reason, I too. For this reason, certainly probably speaks to verses 13 and 14. But as a whole, Paul is taking us back to everything that he has just praised God for. This this scope of redemption, who God is for this reason. And so as we consider the hope of his calling, we can't do so without at least meditating together on Ephesians 1. There's so many sermons here in Ephesians 1, but just listen, listen and worship with me as we think about God's redemptive purposes in Christ, in our calling. This is this is what he's praying that the Holy Spirit would reveal to them. Look at verse three. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This would encompass all of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Every blessing, every blessing, everything that we have received through God's saving work. God chose us in Him, according to verse 4, before the foundation of the world. He's making us holy and blameless before Him, in verse 4. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. He loves us, in verse 5. He says, in love, He predestined us. He adopted us. Verse 5. We've been redeemed according to verse 7. We've been forgiven according to verse 7. He made known to us. He revealed to sinners the mystery of His will, the Gospel, according to verse 9. There's an inheritance that is ours according to verse 11. We have been given the Holy Spirit sealed with the Spirit of promise according to verses 13 and 14. Consider our salvation past, present, and future. Paul takes us all the way, eternity past, and all the way to eternity future as we consider the scope of redemption. Eternity past, in verse 3, chosen before the foundation of the world. What about the present? We have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sin. What about eternity future? What's that look like? Verse 10, the summing up of all things in Christ. Everything is headed towards Christ in verse 14, a view to the redemption of God's own possession, eternity past, present, eternity, future, our salvation. Consider God's purposes in our salvation in these verses, verses 6, 12 and 14, everything God does over and over and over the drumbeat to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Consider the Trinity. That's bound up in these passages. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit clearly noted as Paul blesses God. Consider Christ. Do we see Him? We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are united to Christ. We have been chosen in Him. This is Christ. Our election is in Christ. From eternity past, betrothing Himself To his beloved. We have been adopted through Christ. The kind intention of his will has been freely bestowed on us in the beloved or Christ. We have redemption through Christ's blood. Forgiveness is through Christ. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Christ. All things will be summed up in Christ. In Christ, we have received an inheritance. Christ is our hope in him. Christ. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation 
having also believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul is praying, Spirit, Holy Spirit, show him Jesus. Show him Christ. Show him Christ. Show him who you are, O God. Let them know something about their adoption through Christ. Oh, please, God, show them what it means to be forgiven. Show them the storehouse of grace that's theirs. He's praying over and over again for them to see Christ. Christ, the hope of their calling. Do you see it? The Holy Spirit, he's praying that the Holy Spirit would open up the treasure chest, that he would open the lid of this treasure chest with all the gold and the silver and the precious jewels and that light that reflects out in this bottomless treasure. There's no bottom. And he's praying that the Holy Spirit would would take for them this precious jewel and say, look, do you see that? That's adoption through Christ. Do you see that? And we say, you've got to be kidding me. That's ours? Yes, that's yours. And he says, look at this. Look at these coins. You know what that is? That's forgiveness. You're forgiven. That's yours. You've got to be kidding me. That's mine? Yeah, that's yours. Do you see this one? This one right here. He chose you. He set his love on you. You have a father. He loves you. That's mine? Yes, that's yours. That's not something I'm going to get? No, that's yours. And he's saying, open that treasure chest so that they can see it. Open the door so they can see it and know it. That's what he's praying, that they would know the hope of his calling. Grace Church, what would it look like if we interceded with a request such as this? What would our corporate prayer meetings look like if we prayed in the spirit of Ephesians 1, 15 through 23? What would it look like as a congregation? What would we look like if God answered that prayer? Let's consider the second petition. He prays that they would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's verse 18. Now, this is a glorious request and one that I will confess to you being very transparent that I have wrestled with. Seems to be two meanings. The beautiful thing is, is that both meanings are biblical And both are true of the believer. Jesus Christ, we would all agree, I hope, believer, that he's the great treasure. First Peter reminds us that those who have been born again to a living hope will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 14 in Ephesians 1, we also learn that the Holy Spirit has given us as a pledge of our future inheritance. So there's a future inheritance for the believer. There is an inheritance, a possession that we have. Christ himself. But this verse also appears to be speaking in context of something else. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He says, his inheritance. Let these verses wash over you. As we consider his inheritance. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Malachi three seventeen, They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. 1 Peter 2, 9. The same language. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The beautiful truth of the gospel is that Christ 
has won us. He has claimed those who are the first to hope in him as his portion, his prized possessions, his trophy of his grace. And he takes much joy over us. You know this verse, Zephaniah 317. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now, what do those verses do to you when you hear them? Is it, I'm so special and I knew, I knew it. God could not live without me. Or does it have the opposite effect, which I hope it does? Humble joy. We are his possession. We are a trophy of his grace. He will never leave us or forsake us. We are united to him. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Now, God is the all sufficient God. Christ is all glorious. We don't add anything to him. Acts 17 is clear about that. But there is something. Something glorious, evidently, by this passage of his inheritance. And it's because we look back to our glorious Savior and we say, look at him. Look at him. The one who shed his own blood for us. He's glorious. And we point to him like 1 Peter 2, 9 says and proclaim his excellencies. Paul is praying that the church at Ephesus will know God better by seeing Jesus as the one who has loved them with an everlasting love and won them to himself. He's praying that they would know God better by knowing Jesus as the one who has won them to Jesus. Grace Church, what would it look like if we interceded on behalf of one another with prayers such as this? What would our corporate prayer meetings look like if we prayed for one another in the spirit of Ephesians 1, 15 through 23? And what would it look like if God answered these prayers for us to know that we are his inheritance? Humble joy. Holy Spirit, open up the treasure chest and let him see. Let him see. The last petition that Paul prays for the church. He prays that they would know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. This is verse 19. As Paul continues his prayer that they would know God more fully, he prays that they would know the greatness of his power. He desires for them to know, not only know, but experience his power at work in them. Now, if I asked you how to describe God's power, you could probably give me uh, a good answer. I love being in Grace Kids, our children's ministry. I can ask a question like this. Kids, who can explain to me what God's power is? Eleven hands go up immediately. And when I call on them, they say, God's power. Yes, God's power. We all can remember being on the playground. My dad's stronger than your dad. Well, yeah, my dad could whoop your dad. My dad can whoop your dad and his dad. And I'm sure that we can come up with some kind of descriptions of God's power in relation to things we see. Sunrises. I mean, how much power to make the sun come up? Volcanoes, earthquakes, tornadoes, storms coming out of nowhere. Think about the power in creation. He speaks and it happens like that. To quote D.A. Carson, 
He says, Paul does not hunt for the most powerful or the most difficult displays of God's power, since such categories are essentially meaningless. Rather, he hunts for the most glorious, the most revealing. Paul makes several incredible statements about God's power, and I want to read these to you. They start in verse 19. When he says, these are, he's speaking about God's power. We want to know how God's power is? We're about to find out. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Interpretation? The power that is at work in the believer's life is the same power which God demonstrated in raising Christ from the dead. Now hold on, not only raising him from the dead, but seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. But not only that, everything has been put into subjection under his feet. He lives and he reigns. God's power demonstrated in his resurrection and exaltation. Get this, is the same power, Paul says, at work. In the believer. Now think about the gospel of Christ for a moment. Our first parents, because they loved themselves rather than God, they ate the forbidden fruit and did what God told them not to do. And it was an act of treason from the creature to the creator. And from generation to generation, sin passed on like a relay race. All of us infected fully infected with sin. In the next chapter of Ephesians, we'll learn that sinners were dead in their trespasses and sins. They love to live there, children of wrath. Because of who God is, God cannot look past sin. He must punish it. He's holy. And they've committed treason. So He must punish sin, and He's vowed to do so. Righteous judgment against humanity for sin. But in an act of love and grace, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, comes to this earth to rescue sinners. He lives a perfect life, just as we were supposed to, but didn't. And he's murdered, undeserving of death. He would never have been deserving of death, but he died in the place of sinners. And desiring to do God's will, he accomplished the work which the Father sent him to do. So he hangs on a cross as a substitute for sinful humanity. And all of God's righteous wrath that we just talked about is heaped upon him and he's treated. He's treated like a sinner. And he dies. He dies. He dies. No life. Heart stops beating. No more breath in the lungs. Brain activity, done. No more blood pumping through his heart. He dies. His body's limp. Just like ours will be one day. They put him in a grave. Just like they're going to put ours one day. But something happens three days later. Something happens. Sacrifice accepted. Something happens. There's a twitch, maybe in the eye. A twitch in the finger. A breath. 
blood starts pumping. Raised to walk in newness of life. Resurrection. Eyes open, sounds coming into the ears. Life. And on this Ascension Sunday, we get to Acts. And we see that He was ascended into heaven, ruling with all authority. But God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. Is it no wonder that Paul, in accordance with this verse, prays, says that he wants to know Him in the power of His resurrection? Or is it no wonder that Paul can say with boldness, for I am confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Confidence, as long as Christ, who is raised, is ruling on the throne, God will bring us all the way. He's confident. In Christ, we know from Ephesians 1, everything is summed up in Him. The eternality of Jesus matters. For I am confident of this very thing, He's going to sanctify you. He's going to take you all the way home. Do you know why? Because of Ephesians 22, 1, 22, and 23. He raised him from the dead, and he's ascended on high with all rule and authority. This is the power at work in us. He keeps us. He sanctifies us. He will bring us safely to the end. Christ conquered the power of death. Sin was smashed, and Satan, he was smashed under the foot. As sure as Christ is raised and super exalted, as ruler and authority over all, so is our inheritance and our future glorification sure. Paul is praying that they would know God better by seeing Jesus' resurrection and exaltation as the source of the power that works within them. Do you see Paul's pointing them to Jesus? Look to Jesus. He's pointing their hearts and our hearts by application to Christ. Do you want to know the power of God work in you? Look at Christ. So Grace Church, what would it look like if we interceded with a request like this? What would our corporate prayer meeting look like if we prayed for one another according to Ephesians 1, 15 through 23? And what would happen? Yes, what would happen to all of us if God answered this prayer? Do you remember what Pastor Jordan asked at the Grace Dinner when, when we were thinking about revival? He asked a question of us. What would it look like for God to become the dominating object in our lives, what would change? What would it look like? Paul is modeling for us. He's praying for us that reality to be experientially known and lived out in the lives of the church at Ephesus. He's praying that statement home for them, for them to be reoriented in God. He's praying that God would reveal to them God and in doing so would change everything. He's praying that they would know God better. Kids, look at me, kids. If I asked you, now you don't respond, you don't have to respond to this, but if I asked you if you could have any toy, and I know some of you don't play with toys anymore, if you could have anything, if money wasn't an option, and I said you could have anything in the whole world, what would it be? Now don't answer. Now let's say after this service, that there was a stack of boxes behind me on the other side of this wall. And they were all wrapped. And they all had your names on them. 
And you opened that box to see what was inside. And it was exactly, exactly what you were thinking. You'd be pretty excited, wouldn't you? You'd probably make a face like, whoa. You'd be really excited. Now, what happens a year later? Let's say it's a toy. Okay, if it's like my house, the toys that you want today are the ones that end up at the bottom of the toy box like a year from now. You don't want to play with them anymore. We're not as excited. Now, the Bible says that Jesus is the great treasure. There was a man that knew that there was a great treasure buried in a field, and he sold everything that he had to go by that, tre- to go by that field so we could have that treasure. That was a picture of Christ's worth. If you know Jesus, if you see him as your treasure, he doesn't wear out. In a year, we don't want to put him at the bottom. And I'm praying for you that you would see Christ, that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see Christ as the treasure and that you would walk with him. Now, young kids who are in Christ, I know that we have many among us and your elders couldn't be more encouraged walking with you and your parents. This prayer in Ephesians 1 should be an encouragement to you that you would pray for yourself that God would give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowing of Him. That you would pray that prayer for your parents and your siblings and those at school that you come in contact with. Pray for me. Pray that prayer for me. So this should be an encouragement to you to pray in accordance, in a spirit, the way Paul prays. Friends, you may be visiting this morning and you're not a Christian. Before you can think rightly about fellowshipping with God through prayer or praying for one another, you must know the one who brings us near to God. The one that we just spoke about. The one who takes far off ones, sinners, and brings them near to God by His work on the cross and the empty tomb. Christians are just ex-far off ones. We've been brought near. And there is a prayer. If we're thinking about model prayers, there is a prayer that I can point you to if you don't know Him. It's one of repentance and faith. It's not a mantra, but in Luke 18, 13, there was a tax collector standing some distance away and he was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was moved upon by God and he saw his need. For God, because he saw who he was. And he saw his need for Christ. It's not the prayer. I'm not asking you to pray this this mantra-like prayer. It's the heart. It was a broken man who realized his great sin before a holy God and his need for a Savior. And Jesus said this man went to his house justified. There's no safer place to cry out than here. If you repent and believe in the risen Christ, he will save you. Grace Church, what would it look like for us to pray in the spirit of Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23? What would it look like for us to pray this way for one another? Well, what about the lady in our congregation that says, pray for me, I've just had a miscarriage. Now, we as a church should do everything we can to be hands and feet for this woman. We should weep. We should go the distance in all those practical ways to comfort her. But let's also pray that God would give to her a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him that she would know, the Christ of Isaiah 61.1, that this Savior binds up the brokenhearted, 
pray that the Holy Spirit would open that treasure chest. What about those in our congregation who would say, I'm depressed. I'm in a dark season right now. I feel alone. I'm in a really tough spot. Church, we need to be a true friend to this one. God help us if we're not willing to sit and maybe keep our mouths shut or weep or do all that we can to care for this precious saint. But oh, let's pray. Pray that that they would know the hope of their calling, that they would know the God of Psalm 91, the one who says, I will cover you with my pinions. I'm your deliverer. The one who says, even in the darkness, even in the darkness, I'm there with you and you're under the shadow of my wings. Shouldn't we pray that way for one another? What about the one who confesses to you that she wishes to be married? She's unmarried. Certainly we should walk with this precious sister. But we should also pray that the Spirit would open up the treasure chest and show her that she has been united to Christ, adopted through Him, and has a Father who loves her. And that Christ is sufficient. We should pray this for her. What about the seasoned saint who's declining in health and is weeks from hospice care? We're not there yet, but it's coming. Won't we be hands and feet in every way? But let's also pray that this saint would know his inheritance. Pray that this saint would know the power that works in them. Pray that God would give to them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would see the exalted and risen Christ in verses 22 and 23, that they would know because of Christ that there is no sting in death and that the victory is His. What about the parent who loses an adult child? That's happened in this congregation. And life's coming, so I assume it'll come again. And certainly, we need to care practically for one another in a myriad of ways. But God help us if we don't pray that He would give to that one a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that they would know the God of Romans 8, the One who causes all things to work together for good to those who love God who are called. The hope of His calling, called according to His purposes, that they would say, though He slay me, I trust in Him. Oh, what if God opened the eyes to see? The Apostle Paul labored in prayer that the congregation in Ephesus would gain a greater view of God. Paul prayed that the church in Ephesus would know God better, not know about Him, but know Him. That they would know in greater degrees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not for new blessings, not for more blessings, for all the blessings that were theirs. Open their eyes so they see Him, God. And that they would live in those realities. Paul prays that they would see Christ. Because he knew that that would change them. He knew that it would radically change them. He knew if God answered his prayers, that they would, they would say things like, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Earlier in the service, our brother Stephen read from John 17, and we've, through the sermon series, we've weaved in our public reading of Scripture this wonderful prayer from Jesus 
He's interceding, not just for his disciples there, but he makes the turn for all who would believe in him. This is what Stephen read today. Listen to this. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prayed that we would see Jesus. Jesus prayed that we would see Jesus. Jesus knew that Jesus was the chief end of prayer. Paul learned this from Jesus. Paul prays like Jesus. So is it pray like Paul? I think there's some helpful application we think about using this as a model prayer to pray when we know what Paul's praying. Pray with Paul's heart, we see his pattern. But perhaps, even more than that for us, the application should be know the God that Paul knew. Walk with the Christ that Paul walked with. Take your little itty bitty life, whether you have two years left or you're ten years old, and God willing, a whole life. But take that life and jump off the cliff into the ocean that is God Himself. Jump into this ocean and hold your breath and kick to go down as deep as you can go in the ocean of God until your lungs ache and your ears pop and it's getting cold because you're deep. And when you can't reach the bottom because there isn't a bottom and you come up for air and you take that breath, you pray, God, give to me a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowing of Jesus. Help me to know you. And you take that breath and you go right back down and you kick to the bottom until you find it. And we know there's not one. But you swim in that ocean and know this God. And when we know this God, when we see Jesus, he will change us. We'll have grander views of God. The salvation He's bestowed on us in Christ. And He'll open that treasure chest and show us who we are and it'll change everything. And our prayers for one another will change. Ephesians 1 should encourage us in our praying. It should free us to pray for one another in these ways. So Grace Church, what would it look like for us to pray with these requests? What would our corporate prayer meetings look like if we prayed for one another like this? And what would we look like as a congregation if God answered these prayers? May God help us to be this kind of people. Let's 